And if there's any children here, kindergarten or first grade, who'd like to be dismissed at Children's Church, you can find that in uh, the back of the sanctuary. With the rest of you, as our kids are being dismissed at Children's Church, with the rest of you, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 20, which you can find on page 190 in the Pew Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 20. As we continue our study of Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy chapter 20, and this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 of Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20, 1 through 9, page 190. Let me read the passage. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you out, uh, out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. And when the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. You know, make no mistake about it, the Christian life is a war. When you become a follower of Jesus and you turn to the Lord Jesus, you enter a state of hostility with the world around you and even with your own self in some ways. You know, when you say yes to the gospel message, that wonderful message that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and raised, and whoever believes in Him can have eternal life and have forgiveness of sins. When you say yes to that message you are also saying no to all the other messages, all the other philosophies, all the other Gospels that the world tells us will save us. When we bow our knee to Jesus and say, Jesus is Lord, we are in that same moment signing a declaration of independence, declaring a revolution against the tyranny of the devil. When you repent of your sins and you say, I, I've lived a life that's not pleasing to God. God, I'm sorry. I want to be forgiven and I want to lead a holy life. Your, your old sinful nature doesn't just poof, magically disappear and go away. It no longer enslaves you, but it's still present and it battles against you. So you find yourself as a Christian wanting to live the holy life that you've been born into, but with those old habits and things sort of pulling you back. And so the, the Christian life is a war against yourself. 
And so the Christian life is a battle against enemies without and enemies within. And in some ways, becoming a Christian makes life more wonderful because you know the Lord and He's with you and you're suddenly alive spiritually. But in other ways, life gets harder because now you're at odds. You're in the kingdom of light and that whole kingdom of darkness that you just took for granted is now opposed to you. And so I think that's why when we read Deuteronomy 20, it speaks to our hearts because we, we experience that being in a battle uh, kind of dynamic that, that this is speaking to. Even though the events of Deuteronomy 20 are a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and uh, you know this is a battle against Canaanites halfway around the world three millennia ago, and even though some ways it seems so far removed, yet as the people of God engaged in a spiritual war, we, we realize that these truths still speak to us today, even in the war which we fight as Christians. So let's look at Deuteronomy 20 and just see what instructions the Lord gives us for conducting this spiritual war in which we find ourselves. And, and as we look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, what I notice is that there's one command and then there's one motivation for that command that God gives them an instruction for war, and then He gives them a, uh, a compelling reason to obey that instruction. And, and once you have those, that, that command and that motivation repeat themselves throughout the passage. So once you kind of find those, you, you just see they pop up over and over again. And it's really the main thrust of this passage. So let me read verse 1 again and see if you, as you listen, can kind of mentally pick out the command and then the motivation for the command. So here's verse 1 again. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. So what's the command? It's do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The main thing that God wants of His people as they go to battle is to have faith in Him, to not be afraid, to trust Him, and to move forward. That's it. They're to arm themselves with courage. They're to arm themselves with faith in, in God's promises and what He said. Don't be afraid. And you know, the Israelites had good reason to be afraid, humanly speaking. You know, it says there in verse 1, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots in an army greater than yours. So God's kind of, you know, preloading their expectations. He's like, look, you're going to go to war and it's going to be overwhelming. You're going to stand on the battlefield and there's going to be horses, chariots, a bigger army. Remember, the Israelites were just nomads. They were shepherds in the desert. So you could see the Israelites, you know, these shepherds in their shepherd's cloaks with their little sticks and their staffs drawing up their battle lines and bearing down on them are chariots. <laughs> you know, that's not a fight you want to be in is a guy with a stick versus a chariot coming against you. The Israelites didn't have the kind of military technology that the Canaanites had. Um, in fact, if you remember, uh, this is not the very first time that the Israelites have faced the Canaanites. This is actually the do-over. The first time was 40 years earlier when the Israelites had come to the edge of Cana and they sent in the spies and the spies came back and the majority of the spies said, we can't go. The walls are too high. The people are too big. They have chariots, they have soldiers, they'll overpower us, they'll destroy us. And the people rebelled against God and they 
rebelled against Moses and they wanted to go back to Egypt. So God said, this generation's not going in. So he waited 40 years. And now in Deuteronomy, it's the next generation that gets the do-over to go into the promised land. And it's the same issue. Don't be afraid of these Canaanites, even though they're bigger, even though they're stronger, even though they have chariots and better technology and are skilled at warfare. Don't be afraid. And then after the command not to be afraid, you have the motivation for the command. Why shouldn't Israel be afraid of better armed and more numerous people? It seems like you should be afraid. Well, because he says, do not be afraid of them, verse 1. Because, here's the reason, the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. The Canaanites have horses, they have chariots, they have experience, they have arms and armor. The Israelites don't have all that. They only have one thing. God. That's it. That's their secret weapon, is the Lord. And so guess what? It's a done deal. They win. If you have the Lord, it doesn't matter what the enemy has. If God is with you and He's behind you and He's supporting you, and His promises are for you, you win before the battle horn is even sounded. And so it's like, look, don't be afraid. you guys don't have to worry about it. You have God. It doesn't matter what they have. It doesn't matter if they have tanks. It doesn't matter if they have, you know, lasers and, and, and robots. I mean, you know, you have God. You have everything you need. You have the Lord. And He is the victor in all of these things. And so don't be afraid. And notice that little line in there. Because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. I I love that little historical reminder. Remember God who brought you up out of Egypt? In other words, this isn't the first time that God has dealt with lots of horses and chariots. There was also that time when you came out of Egypt. Remember that 40 years ago? Yeah, that's right. The Israelites were leaving Egypt. They came to the Red Sea. They were stopped at the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh marshaled his entire cavalry against them. All his horses and chariots were bearing down. And so Israel was about to be slaughtered by the, uh, the Egyptian army coming against them at the Red Sea. And the people started to panic. The people started to become terrified. And Moses said to them, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you from Exodus 14. Moses said to them, do not be afraid. There it is. Don't be afraid. Stand firm And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I love that verse, Exodus 14, 13 to 14. Just stand still. Israel, here's the battle plan. Just stand still. Stop worrying. Stop fidgeting. Stop freaking out. Don't be afraid. God is going to win the victory. you just got to stand and watch it. That's how you're going to fight this battle. You're just going to stand and watch it happen. So go ahead. Let's check out what God's going to do. And we know the story. He parted the Red Sea. The Israelites went through. The Egyptians were destroyed. So God won that great victory for them. In fact, this idea that, that you don't have to be afraid because God is going to win the victory is so much the way Israel is supposed to fight that Moses commanded that it be kind of ritualized and ceremonialized and institutionalized into their pre-battle warm-ups. So every time they went to battle, they were supposed to be reminded of these two truths. Don't be afraid. God fights for you. So look at verse 2. When you're about to go into battle, here's the ritual. The priest shall come forward and address the army. 
He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. And notice he says, don't be afraid four different ways. One, do not be faint-hearted. Two, or afraid. Three, do not be terrified. Four, or give way to panic before them. So he uses four different synonymous Hebrew words for fear or panic. And he says, don't to each of those. Just driving the point home, you know, don't be afraid, don't be faint-hearted, don't panic, don't be distressed, like a nail being driven in, just sealing their courage into place. And why? Same reason. Verse uh, There in verse uh, 4, he says, For, because the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and give you the victory. It's God who does the battling. And when you step back and you look at Israel's history, their military history, like, yeah, that's the history of Israel militarily, is they didn't do anything and God won the battles. They kind of showed up, they trusted God, and then God took care of it. It's sort of a weird military history. It's a supernatural military history. You know, we talked about the armies of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. But, but you know, just kind of, can you think of some of those stories from maybe Sunday school or vacation Bible school growing up, some of those battle stories. How about when the Israelites came to the walls of Jericho? You remember that? And the walls came down because Israel had battering rams and siege engines and trebuchets and, you know, ballistas. No. They just marched around it for seven days. And on the seventh day, you know, God knocked the walls down. God won that victory. Or when Samson was imbued with like superhero powers, (laughs) superhuman strength to to defeat the Philistines. God gave him that power and gave him that victory. Or when Gideon, you know, blew the trumpet with his 300 men, they broke the jars, they shined their torches, and they, they gave a shout, and all of the hosts of Midian turned on each other because of God's power and killed each other. And so they just sort of, you know, watched it happen and then went in and cleaned up afterwards. Or think, uh, think about the story of Jehoshaphat. Do you remember? That's a great name, by the way. Do you remember King Jehoshaphat from the Old Testament? I love this story. There was this huge mob of Ammonites and Moabites. They had formed an alliance. They were marching on Jerusalem. And, and people in Jerusalem were panicked because they were outnumbered, outgunned, that kind of thing. And so Jehoshaphat the king went in and cried out to the Lord. And the Lord answered him and said, Don't worry, God's going to fight this. You don't have to fight it. God's going to take care of the whole thing. So Jehoshaphat went into battle. And do you remember the story who he put at the front of the army? Who led the battle? It wasn't SEAL Team 6. It wasn't Delta Force. It wasn't a band of ninjas. It was the praise team and the choir. He put the musicians in front. And so the the battle went forward, not with the best troops, but with the guys with the little drums and the flutes and, you know, (laughs) praising God. So that the battle would be led with praise. So that at the the tip of the spear would be the praise of God going out to the nations. And as they came to the day of battle, you can go back and read this story, they showed up at the battlefield and they looked around and all the armies were already dead. They'd already killed each other. It's like, huh. Well, you know, I guess that takes care of that and that was over. Or think, just one more, think about when the Assyrians, who were the superpower in the Middle East in the 8th century. I I mean, the Assyrians ate countries for breakfast. Everyone died at the hands of the Assyrians. 
you know, Tiglath-Pileser and Sennacherib and, and all these great Assyrian kings, one after another, just dominated the ancient Near East in their day. And they came, and, and Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, his, his armies washed up against the walls of Jerusalem like an ocean to, to just deluge and drown Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah cried out to God. He said, God, they are insulting you. You need to stand up for your glory. He went to bed. He woke up in the morning. The Assyrians were dead. And so it says, and Sennacherib retreated back to Assyria. And that's the kind of the story. And like, how did it happen? Well, God just did it. And so you look at Israel's history. It's a history of supernatural victory when they trusted God. When they, when they didn't trust God, not so much. It went the other way. When they trusted in their own strength or their own power, it went the way you would imagine those kinds of uh, uh, battles would go given Israel's circumstances. But God gave them a dramatic victory to His people in those days. And so here's Moses telling them the formula. You trust God. You believe in Him. He's going to win the victory for you. It doesn't matter how many people you have. God is the one who's going to do it. In fact, look at Deuteronomy 20, verses 5 to 9. Here's this continuation of the pre-battle ritual. Here's the continuation of the pre-battle strategy that they're supposed to do every time they go to battle. And this, this also shows that it's God who's going to win the victory and that they need not be afraid. Because the, uh, the officers now step forward after the priests have spoken and they start inviting people to, um, to go home. <laughs> you know, look at verse 5. Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home. Verse 6. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home. Verse 7. Has anyone been pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home. And two thoughts on those verses. One is that uh, it shows the compassion of God, the mercy of God. But I think a second thing it does, it, it, I just think, you know, dude, you're shrinking your army. <laughs> That's not what you do when you go to battle. You're trying to get more people, not like send people home. How do you, what kind of draft is this? I don't know if, if you've uh, ever been on jury duty, been called a jury duty. It's amazing the kind of things people make up to try to get out of three days of jury duty. I mean, every excuse in the book. I always try to stay in, but they kick me out because I'm a pastor. You know, but, but most people, they're like, they're like, oh, yeah, I got a big problem. I got to go. And they try to explain. So imagine the commander saying to people in front of a battle, not three days of jury duty, but a battle saying, look, I'm going to give you excuses. Anyone here got just going to get married, about to get married? Go home. Planted a vineyard? Go home. Haven't enjoyed your vineyard yet? Go home. Now, there's, check this out. There's another law in the Old Testament that says... After you plant a vineyard, you must wait three years and not touch the vineyard. The fourth year, the vineyard is holy to the Lord. The fifth year, you may eat it. So, you can't technically enjoy your vineyard until five years after you plant it. So, that's got to be excusing a lot of people. Like, oh, I planted my vineyard four years ago and you know, I haven't enjoyed it yet, so I guess I can go. So, if you just plant a vineyard, you can pretty much get out of war for like five years. <laughs> So, wow, look at all these people leaving. But it doesn't matter. It's not about numbers. God is going to win the victory. So who cares? God's like, well, just go home. Yeah, don't worry. You guys sit this one out. You'll be in the next one. God's going to win the victory. It's not about numbers. And then verse 8, you get this other exemption, which is a little bit different than the previous three. Then the officer shall add, is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home. 
so that his brothers will not be disheartened too. So of all the people who are left, which is now many, many fewer than started. And by the way, anyone here scared? Okay, go home. We don't want you in this battle. Go home. We, we don't want you infecting the others with your fearful unbelief. Go home. The only people who are going to be there are people who trust God. And so this is the defining characteristic of the armies of Israel. Faith. They have faith. It's not the most well-trained. It's not the guys who are the best fighters. Maybe there's some of those left. Maybe some of those went home. Who knows? But whoever's left, that's who's going to be the army, and they're going to be the people who trust God and who walk forward in faith. Faith is going to be their weapon. It reminds me of like when David fought Goliath. You know, what did he have? He had faith. That was it. You know, David went to this battle and said, they're like, okay, you're going to fight Goliath. He tried on all the armor of Saul and his sword. He's like, I can't fight in this. He took it off. And so David goes out there to fight Goliath and Goliath's looking at him and starts smack talking him and threatening him and, and uh, making fun of him. And you remember what David says? He's like, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts who you've defied this day. You know, David didn't say, you come at me a sword and spear and javelin, but I got a sling and I'm a wicked good shot. Like, I could totally nail you from here. Like, you know, that wasn't it. That wasn't his confidence. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really good at this. It was, God can do it. God helped me before with the bear and the lion. God can help me with this, this big brood. I, I can take him down because God's with me. And whether it's with my sling or whether he trips and falls and breaks his neck, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know God can win this victory, so let's get it on. And David charged him because of his confidence in who God was. And it's that kind of faith in God's power and in God's promises and in God's presence that was to be the defining characteristic of this army. And then I love verse 9. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. So, so this is not an organized standing army. This is an army called together in times of crisis and organized on the spot at that time. Then they were divided up with commanders and, and that kind of thing. But it was people who trusted the Lord and believed that God could do it. And that's why I think, again, when we come to this text, it resonates with us as Christians. Because even though the times have changed and the battle that we face as New, Test New Covenant Christians is very different in some ways, there's still that underlying dynamic. Don't be afraid. God is the one who fights the battle. Trust in the Lord. You know, have faith. Right? Because in some ways, right, it's very different. The Old Covenant battle versus the New Covenant battle. I mean, the Old Covenant battle was about conquering a piece of territory, a geopolitical uh, piece of real estate on planet Earth, and that God's kingdom was going to be very tangibly expressed within the physical borders of Israel. That was how God's kingdom was in the Old Covenant. And so the mission was to drive out the Canaanites from the Holy Land. But in the New Covenant, in the New Israel, what we see is that the mission is very different. It's not take over a piece of land in the Middle East. It's take the gospel to all the nations. And not through force, not through coercion, but just preaching the gospel. You know, Jesus gave us our marching orders. He said, therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so our mission is not to take over the world. In fact, you know, Pilate, Pontius Pilate was talking to Jesus about king, the kingdom and his kingship, and Jesus told Pilate flat out, he said, look, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my people would stand up and fight for me, and we'd defend our territory. But that's not where my kingdom is. But we're here to infiltrate all the kingdoms of the world with the gospel message. And so that means... The weapons of our warfare are very different too because it's different mission. The, the weapons of the warfare under the Old Covenant were conventional weapons, spears and swords and chariots and that kind of thing. But under the New Covenant, our weapons are the Gospel, prayer, living a holy life, being willing to sacrifice and serve and love. These are the weapons of the New Covenant in order to advance the Gospel message. I like what Paul says in Second Corinthians 10. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captivity into captivity every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so the gospel war is not about weapons that hurt people physically. It's about a message that comes against other messages so that the message of Christ is proclaimed. And by God's power, not our power, not our persuasiveness or charisma or humor, but by God's power, His message is the thing that's taking captive people and winning the day. Our enemies are different. Under the Old Covenant, the enemies were Canaanites and Assyrians and Philistines. Under the New Covenant, people are not the enemy. You know, Paul is very clear about this in Ephesians 6. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So people are, you know, the enemies of the Christians are not the Muslims. The enemies of the Christians are not the secularists. The enemies of the Christians are not whoever doesn't believe in Christ. The enemies of, of Christians is, is the evil one. And, and it's other gospel messages. It's truth. And it's our own sinful hearts that are our real big enemies that we battle against. And so our goal is to preach the gospel and to tell people about the love of the Savior who's found us as well. And so it's a very different kind of battle, the, the kind of battle we're engaged in as Christians. And yet... I think the underlying dynamic is the same. Don't be afraid. God wins the battle. And let's trust Him. You know, if you're a Christian and you woke up this morning, you woke up on a battlefield. We, every day as Christians, wake up in a battle against sin in our own hearts. We've talked about this a little bit, but let's just think about it together. There's a battle in my own soul against my old sin nature. Even though I'm a new man in Christ... Old habits, old evil desires, all the sinful ways that my family taught me to react to life are still with me. And, and I have to fight against those things that are within my own sinful nature that still is there until I get to heaven. I'm going to have this fight. Check this out. Go to Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 3. It's on page 1166. 1166. Colossians chapter 3. Page 1166, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. 
Listen to how Paul talks about this spiritual war against sin in our own hearts. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Notice the strong language. Put to death. Do you hear that? It's what in the old days they used to call mortification. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Those things come out of our hearts. And Paul says you've got to put that to death. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie to each other. All these old ways of behaving are still tempting us as Christians from within our own hearts. And so every day the Christian battle is is to defeat those things. To put them to death. I, I, I can't live that way anymore. And I think for some of us, we're afraid because we're like, I, I can't do that. I can't overcome it. This is just how I am. I, I can't overcome an addiction. I can't overcome this way of behaving. This is what, this is what my, my dad did. This is what my mom did. This is what my grandmother was like. This is just how my side of the family is. I'm just screwed up. I'll never be better. You know, we say things like that. Like, I, I just give up. This is how I am. Brothers and sisters, we're called to fight and not be afraid even of of what we find in our own souls. You know, the the more you get closer to God, the more junk you find in your own heart. The closer you get to the light, the brighter it shines and the more you realize there's so much more work to be done. And so it can be discouraging. But we've got to take courage that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. It's God who's going to fight that battle, not ourselves. And so we have to trust him that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, has, has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's defeated the devil. And we are in Christ. And so although I don't believe in sinless perfection in this life, there's one, you know, some doctrines that say you can become completely free of sin in this life. I just don't think that's true. But I also don't believe in the doctrine that as Christians we just need to roll over and give up and say, well, this is just how I am. That's not biblical either. We, we need to fight against sin in our lives, not in our power, not through our ingenuity, but through relying on the power of Jesus every day. Jesus, I believe you can help me lead a holy life today. But I've got to take up the sword. I've got to read the Word. I've got to pray. I've got to call upon the power of God. I've got to put on the spiritual armor. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, you know, with all kinds of prayers and requests, Paul exhorts us. We just need to keep putting that spiritual armor on every day. It's a battle. Don't be surprised if it's tough. But it's a daily relying upon the power of God to overcome the presence of sin in our lives. There's another battle we face as Christians. It's similar to that sin battle in some ways, but it's what I'll call it's the battle against unbelief in the face of discouragements. 
You know, sometimes another battle we face as Christians is just setbacks in our lives. We have problems in marriages. And it just seems like it's never going to get better. Our spouse is always going to be this way. We have setbacks. You know, we're single. You're a single parent. I mean, you're just trying to hold everything together and the job and the kids. And you're like, I can't do this. Sometimes we're discouraged because of health issues that are very chronic and long-lasting. Sometimes lethal. Sometimes it's job issues. I mean, just all kinds of things in life happen to us. And we face these various challenges. And there's a spiritual war there. It may not be where you think it is, though. I think sometimes when bad things happen to us, we go, Satan's attacking me. And I'm always nervous about that language because I, I, I don't want to give Satan too much power. You know, nothing happens to us except what God allows. Even the bad things that Satan did to Job were because God allowed it to happen. And so let's not be giving Satan too much credit for stuff. And instead, the spiritual battle is this. Will I continue to trust and glorify God in the face of chronic difficulties? That's the battle. Will I continue, even when things go against me, to be the person who walks into church to praise the name of the Lord? Or will I let bitterness and complaints and nastiness start to fill my heart? Or will I be the person who says, regardless, I'm going to praise the Lord? You know, one of the things, uh, you know, when missionaries go to, to other countries that, that don't have the kind of prosperity that we do and uh, maybe that, that have, you know, various economic challenges, one of the things they often come back with is they say, those people have nothing compared to us, but they have so much joy in the Lord. You know, and that's the thing to learn. Can we be full of joy in the Lord regardless of our circumstances? That's the spiritual battle. You know, the spiritual battle for Job wasn't that all those bad things happened to him. I think the real spiritual battle is when his wife came to him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? That's the battle. Will I curse God or will I continue to praise His name? You know, should we pray for difficulties to go away? Yes. What if they don't though? What if God says to us, like He said to Paul, look, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to take the thorn away. What if the thing you wish would go away in your life is actually going to continue until your last day on earth. I mean, what if? I hope it doesn't. Let's pray against it. But what if it stays with you? Will I still be praising Him? Will I still trust Him? Will I still be glorifying Him even if my circumstances don't get fixed? And you say, I can't do it. And I say, you're right. You need the Lord's help. You need to call upon God's power every day for grace to face life's challenges in a way that glorifies Him. What about the battle for the Gospel itself? What about the battle to, to preach the Gospel? You know, we're called here to this mission field known as New England where th- there's a great need for the Gospel ministry. And it's like, oh, too big, too many chariots, too many horses. New England can't be one. Too many hard hearts. You know, too much nominalism. People are too secular. They think they're too smart for Jesus. You know, all this stuff that, that, that New England kind of has about it. It makes it so hard to do gospel ministry. But like, do we believe that the gospel has power to save people or not? Does God have a, an elect people here to gather or not? Should we go forward with the gospel ministry or not? It depends on do we believe God can do the work? We can't save anybody, but the gospel can. And so we need to not be afraid. Maybe God is calling you on a gospel mission here in New England. Do you have a gospel mission 
Has God brought somebody into your life who needs to hear about Christ and that's your gospel mission? Maybe you have a friend, someone you've known for like five years, eight years, ten years, twelve years, and you've tried all the tricks to kind of like trick them into coming to church, you know. Maybe they've come a couple times and that's been cool and and you've got them here and they know where you stand. But you know what? You look back at that five years, eight years, ten years. Have you ever clearly shared the gospel with them? You know, what if it's now time after 10 years to cash in a few chips and to say, look, can I have lunch with you? You've known me, you know, you know, I have this faith and, and I love you and, and you love me. We're friends. I, I just feel like as a friend, I just need to share something with you. That's a part of what I believe deeply that I think you would want to hear. Can I just explain the gospel? Can we go to lunch? And it'll take five minutes. I just want to share the gospel with you. Like, what if we just did it that way? Just put it out there. Maybe that's a mission. Maybe God is calling you some of here to missions, foreign missions. Maybe He's calling you to, to some ministry that you've had on your heart. Maybe He's calling you to, to pastoral ministry. I mean, who knows what God is calling you to. But you've been saying, I'm afraid. I can't do it. I'm not equipped. I don't have the answers. You're like Moses. I can't do this. God sent somebody else. I'm not a good talker. Whatever. We've got to trust God and believe that God is the one who can accomplish these things through His power. Or one last battle, and then I'll, I'll close with this one. It's very possible that some of us here are in a different but similar kind of battle in some ways. It's a battle that you're in against Jesus Himself. That you've been hearing the Gospel, you've been hearing about the Lord, but you haven't surrendered your heart to Christ. And it's a battle. You feel Him coming at you and, and you know the Lord is calling you and entreating you and you're like a Canaanite behind your little wall you know, just with your spears pointed out. And, and no matter where you turn, God seems to be bringing His Word into your life, whether it's a TV preacher you heard or coming to church or a Bible study you're in. And you feel like the Lord is calling you, but you're so afraid. You're like... But if I follow Christ, you know, what will happen? What will happen? Will I have to do this? Will I have to become a missionary? Will I, you know, will I have to give up that? What will people think of me? And it's all these fears. I can't follow the Lord. He couldn't save someone like me. But you need to know that God has power and that God can save and God has a plan. So don't hold out. Surrender to the Lord. You know, that's what my own conversion felt like when I became a Christian. I started hearing the gospel when I was about eh, 11, 12, 13. I, I can't remember how old. It's funny how sometimes the most important things in life happen when you're young and you don't realize they're happening. And I, I, boy, I wish I remembered when it was and all that, but I don't have the stats. But anyway, I was kind of a, a, a young teenager sort of thing. And, and I, my mom drug us to this church, and it's where I started hearing the Word of God. I went to a Sunday school class where they started teaching us the Bible, a youth group where they taught the Bible. The pastor was very faithful and telling us the gospel every Sunday and preaching the Bible. And I was hearing about Christ. And it was very interesting. It was really interesting. I was like, this is different. You know, I don't hear this in school. This is kind of cool. And I, I was sort of taking it in, absorbing, absorbing. And then something happened. It was like a shift took place. And it wasn't so much intellectually interesting as God then began to confront me with a call to follow Christ. I didn't hear a voice. I didn't see a vision. It was just something in my heart where God was like, you follow Christ. And it wasn't like a little polite invite. 
you know, like on Facebook, you know, click like if you want to come to this event. I, I felt like God was subpoenaing me. I was being summoned by His majesty to like follow Christ. And it went on for like six months. And I'm telling you, at the end of every church service, I was... I would just sit there and we'd, try, you know, we'd sing the closing song like all churches do, like we're going to do in a few minutes here. And as I stood there singing that closing song, holding the hymnal, like I, would, I couldn't sing because I'd start crying because it was like the Lord was calling me to Christ and I didn't want to do it. I was scared. I was afraid. And finally one day, you know, God wins. Look, if God's got your number, like it's just a matter of time. So that's just how it is. So deal with it. God's going to get you. And he got me. And I just remember when I, when I came to faith in Christ, it wasn't so much like I decided to accept Jesus. It's more like I was in Jericho and the walls fell down. God came in and grabbed me and said, gotcha. You know, you're following me now. And so, of course, I chose to follow him at that point. I didn't want to do anything else at that point because he had changed my heart. So that my response of faith was because he had captured me first by his power. It's all by the power of God. Maybe God is after you and you know it. You've been in a a silent battle. Open your heart to the Lord. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Lord Jesus, we believe that You are risen from the dead. We believe that You are alive at the Father's hand right now as King of kings. We believe You're coming back. And so, Lord, we humbly entreat that You would exercise resurrection power into our lives today. God, I pray for brothers and sisters who are struggling against sin that You would exert resurrection power in their life to give them strength to say no to temptation. And Lord, give them faith to keep looking to Jesus every time they're tempted. God, I pray for uh, brothers and sisters here who are overwhelmed by life's circumstances, who wrestle against hopelessness and despair and bitterness and discouragement. God, I pray that You would exert resurrection power in their lives to give them the capacity to keep believing despite all appearances. Help them to believe more in Christ than in the things that face them. Lord, I pray for all of us here as we're called to this gospel ministry to preach the gospel, whether it's as a missionary, a pastor, or just a person over coffee. Lord, I just pray that You would give us confidence in the gospel and that You would exert Your power to open up some hearts that have been closed to You for people we've been praying for for a long time. And finally, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here with the the walls manned against you, with the spears pointing out toward you, God, that you would blow the trumpet, that the walls would fall, that you would take captives, Lord, and in taking captives, you'd be setting people free. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would exert resurrection power into South Shore Baptist Church for your glory, that you would exert resurrection power on the South Shore of Boston for your glory, and to other churches that preach the gospel, Lord. 
And even for churches that don't preach the gospel, that they might find the gospel again, Lord. May your power transform us. Lord, send revival, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.